Schools, health, public housing and community facilities all fall under a crucial subset of infrastructure. Access to this type of social infrastructure varies from place to place, sometimes drastically impacting people's quality of life, most notably between urban and rural areas. Hi, I'm Jill Hannaford, GHD's Global Future Communities Leader and host of What's Now, What's Next, a snackable podcast series exploring today's challenges and tomorrow's opportunities for our communities. And importantly, how we can support thriving places and spaces that put people first. Today, I'm exploring equitable access to social infrastructure in both urban and rural settings. I'm joined by social planning and Aboriginal engagement specialist, Chloe Sullivan. Chloe leads GHD's practice across Northern Australia and is based in Darwin. I'm also joined by Katrina McCulloch, stakeholder consultation lead, who is dialing in from Toronto, Canada. Great to be here with you both today. A really fundamental question that I've got to ask you both is, what is social infrastructure, Chloe? Thanks, Jill. Um, when I think of social infrastructure, I, I kind of think of two parts. I think of the the built form, the hard infrastructure, the buildings that help service our communities. Um, but I also think of the soft infrastructure, so the programs, um, the experiences, um, the aspects of life that um, that community really need to fulfil basic needs like healthcare, education, um, safety, things like that. That's a great definition. Um, Katrina, does that definition ring true for you in your part of the world? You're calling in from Canada? Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. And I think just to add to that, I think an, an important aspect of it is that it's more than the sum of those individual parts. It's more than just healthcare, education, or housing individually. It's about how they uh, interrelate to support a community. Um, I like how Vancouver defined it in their new social infrastructure strategy. They stress that social infrastructure includes the networks of physical and social spaces where people come together. So emphasizing that interconnectedness is uh, really important. Yeah. And is there an argument for um, saying that all infrastructure should be considered social given communities uh, use all forms of infrastructure, Katrina? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I hadn't really thought of it like that before, but certainly my experience is, is that it's the the hard infrastructure or the, you know, even water, wastewater, our waste systems does have a big impact on social infrastructure. Even if it's not included in that definition, we have to look at those aspects of our community as interrelated, certainly. Yeah, and Chloe, you're calling in from Darwin in Australia. What is your perspective on should all infrastructure be considered social? What about the roads and bridges uh, and pieces of infrastructure like that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's really interesting. So uh, having, I think, lived and worked in urban context, so um, formerly based in Sydney, I think I probably would have answered this question really differently and, and perhaps taken some of that more traditional hard infrastructure like roads, like internet and, um, and power for granted a little bit more. But having worked up here in Darwin and in remote settings, um, you really see the change and difference in people's lives and, and how that does impact the social fabric of communities when you do introduce infrastructure like 
telecommunications or, um, you know, you are lacking access to basic infrastructure such as clean water. That leads to a, a really interesting question for me is, and that is how do we know when we get it right? How do we measure the success of, of this broad category of social infrastructure? I think it's really interesting, this concept of measuring success and knowing if we get it right, because again, I think the experience is quite different. I think, you know, in places like Sydney that are growing and we're focusing on rapid sort of gentrification, urban renewal, placemaking, um, you know, you really have a lot of work and um, thought process into developing really tailored social infrastructure that suits the needs of specific parts of the community. And I think there's a lot of work that goes into understanding if that is something that community um, see as valuable, if if they utilise that facility or that infrastructure. But I think in remote contexts, um, you know, we're, we're really just servicing basic needs still. We're still um, solving massive overcrowding and housing issues. We've got roads and access issues for most communities. So I think, you know, when we get it right is is really servicing those basic human needs um, out here. And I think it's really different to see how the profession of social planning operates uh, really differently in those two contexts. Yeah, great. Thank you. And Katrina, is the examples in Canada, do they ring true for the sorts of things that Chloe's just described? Is there a difference between uh, social infrastructure in urban areas compared to rural areas? And how do you think we go about measuring it? Yeah, I think absolutely there is a there is a difference and it sounds really simple but in order to know whether we got it right one of the first things we have to do is make sure that we're measuring um that we're measuring it right in the first place a lot of the time and doing the the right data collection. So a lot of the time we don't even have good data on the population, housing, whether there's precarious housing, you know, economic uh, income gaps, that kind of thing. We have to look at that as a as a starting point before we answer the question of whether uh, whether we're successful. Yeah, and I and I guess that also leads me to explore with you the concept of who we're listening to. So, how do you think we should go about ensuring that the right voices are heard, and that we're accounting for those uh, disparate wants and needs within communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an absolute essential question for me as a stakeholder engagement practitioner. It used to be that we were focused when we when we go out to consult a community, it used to be that we were focused on equality and accessibility. So we're making sure that everyone has the same access to participate, whether it's a, a workshop or um, a town hall or that kind of event that we're, you know, publicizing it widely. Uh, that we have it at a time that's convenient for most people. But we're now increasingly realizing that that's simply not enough uh, to take that equality lens. We have to take more of an, an equity and a justice lens. So an example of this on a, in a recent project we were working with for um, Peel Region, and we were asking residents the questions around how they pay for waste and what does that look like? Uh, so we did all of the standard community engagement we would typically do. We did workshops out in the community. We had a website and doing virtual engagement there. But we also had a had focus groups with Peel Region's lived experience uh, group. And that those are people 
who have lived experience with poverty. Uh, so they either are experiencing poverty or they have in the past. And it was really important to go to them and have a really focused conversation with just them to ensure that that uh, that their voice and that their perspective was considered as part of the project. Yeah, I'm sure that really leads to um, better infrastructure provision when we do hear from people with those lived experiences. Chloe, have you used that type of technique in the work you do in Northern Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I think something just observing having been working in a number of different remote communities across especially Northern Territory, the the sort of legacy social infrastructure that you see in communities. So, um, you know, you might you might be in community and see a, a youth centre or, you know, even something like a police station or a cultural centre. And I think that um, it's really different to see the different relationships that community have with those facilities. So, um, you know, sometimes we find that those communities that have been really involved in the process of, I guess, even even physically building that infrastructure have such a strong sense of connection. So an example is, you know, a project we were working on with upgrading a cyclone shelter in one of the remote communities in Northern Territory. And even though um, the cyclone shelter was deemed, um, you know, not fit for purpose any longer from a structural point of view, because some of the elders in community had built that structure, um, the community were really attached to it and they didn't want to see any of it disturbed or taken away. So they wanted to use it for a different purpose other than for a cyclone shelter. And I think that goes to show that even just involving communities in not only decision-making processes ultimately and ideally, but even in the process of design and through to construction. So you create that sense of ownership for people. It sort of talks to that sustainability lens, doesn't it, when we're able to repurpose and reuse facilities um, based on what the community wants for that particular piece of infrastructure. What do you think's next for social infrastructure? What do you hope to see in the future? How do you think uh, the, the area of social infrastructure and the conversations about social infrastructure should play out in, in conversations more broadly about infrastructure? Uh, Katrina, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I think in Canada, we're going back to that, what I talked about at the beginning about taking a holistic view of social infrastructure. I think that that is really the next step. So recognizing intersectionality and recognizing that inequalities are interconnected. So for example, an example of this is energy and and resource proponents, particularly in smaller and more remote communities in the north or in other parts of Canada are increasingly being asked by regulators what their project means for vulnerable populations. So for example, are vulnerable populations excluded from the economic and social benefits of you know, new mines or new energy projects? So look again, looking at those, um, it's not just about the impact of the mine itself or the energy project, uh, but what it means for the larger community. So an example of that is that in, in particular in these remote mining communities where, you know, that development, the mine might be uh, one of the only or the largest industry, those new developments can be, uh, or new mines can be really impactful and can drive up the cost of housing in a community. 
simply by by existing and by bringing in all these new people. And so, you know, one of the trickle down effects of that is is that you know, the local population, vulnerable people who are relying on affordable rentals, that might negatively impact them. They're no longer, uh, they can no longer afford to live in, in this community. So, you know, another example of how that we're uh, increasingly looking at this interconnectedness and that intersectionality. Yeah, Chloe, I'm sure you've got something to say about intersectionality, given the work you do. Uh, does it impact heavily on social infrastructure provision in your experience? Yes, I think so. And I, I think that I, I completely agree that especially in our, our urban centres, there's definitely more of a focus on the whole experience, the lived experience for each community member. And I think that that is slowly starting to trickle down to the way we approach our service delivery and infrastructure in remote communities as well. And I, I do see that that is a positive change and will continue to sort of grow as the way we deliver our services in our remote areas. So an example of this is, um, you know, it, it can be just the most basic services, healthcare, education, things like that, but they can be still delivered in a holistic and appropriate way that meets the needs and, and ways of life of that community. So for example, something that I take for granted being um, in Australia and having grown up in a predominantly Western environment is, um, you know, you go to a, a a healthcare specialist or you might go to a, um, a dentist at one place and you might go to a physio at another place. But for Indigenous communities, you know, they see their whole care as, as one holistic process. So separating out those services doesn't align with the way they see their own self and, and taking care of themselves. So even co-locating services like that in a place that is culturally accessible um, is really important. So so we can apply that thinking to our most basic levels of, of social infrastructure provision. Katrina, what do you think organisations who um, consider the sorts of issues we've been talking about today will benefit from if they follow some of the things that you and Chloe have suggested for us? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking primarily of our private sector um, clients here. And I think if they're, you know, considering these types of developments or coming into a community, if they consider these types of impacts, if they consider, you know, how their project will impact the social infrastructure, I think they'll be better positioned to gain that community acceptance that they really need, as well as the political buy-in uh, from regulators that's important as well. And Chloe, is that your take too? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's no project too small. I think that sometimes um, there's this perception that um, some, you know, infrastructure development or project has to be this major development to justify going and speaking to community. But going and asking the question, a bit, even about the smallest infrastructure project or smallest service that you might be planning, it doesn't take long. And I think that the benefits are so long term and can really um, lead to much better outcomes for communities. So we've had a great conversation today about access and equity, particularly in the context of social infrastructure. Some of the key things I heard from you both uh, were around making sure we understand cultural context, thinking about intersectionality, really listening to those voices and those lived experiences and taking a very holistic approach to how we provide and consider social infrastructure for our communities. 
That was Chloe Sullivan and Katrina McCulloch on the theme of access and equity. To hear and read more on their perspectives and explore other topics relevant to our future communities, visit ghd.com forward slash now next. I'm Jill Hannaford. Thanks for joining us.